I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to After Kim Jong-il on America Abroad. For more than two decades, the U.S. has had a series of confrontations with North Korea over its nuclear ambitions. It began in 1988 when U.S. intelligence detected signs that North Korea was building a plutonium reprocessing plant near its nuclear reactor at Yongbyon. The crises that followed led to tough negotiations and nearly to war. Bob Gallucci was the Clinton administration's chief negotiator with North Korea. There's a bluntness that you associate with New Yorkers that you don't normally associate with diplomats, right? And when you think about dealing with North Koreans, a standard response that I have to the question is, what's it like? Well, it's different. They're not Canadians is uh, the first thing that strikes one. Gallucci says his Brooklyn roots prepared him well for dealing with North Korea. And they have a a degree of emotion and sometimes hostility in the way they interact in a negotiation that one may respond to, I suppose, with extraordinary diplomacy. Or I think an an equally effective way is by the blunt, if I can put it this way, New Yorker reaction. And a blunt New Yorker reaction is one that I reach for more easily than the diplomatic response. My experience was that they weren't irrational. At times, they could actually be quite easy to deal with. Joel Witt was a State Department official and senior advisor to Robert Gallucci. But I didn't find their behavior that distinctive from other countries you might negotiate with. Sure, they, you know, they use brinksmanship a lot in their negotiations, but are people going to tell me that the Arabs and Israelis don't use brinksmanship in their negotiations? Donald Gregg was CIA station chief in South Korea in the 1970s and an ambassador to South Korea during the first Bush administration. What I have found is, is the Koreanness uh, of, of North Korea is the thing that needs to be contended with. I've talked to a Korean psychologist about it, and uh, there is a Korean characteristic, a sense of the feeling of Han. That's a Korean word, H-A-N, and it's a sort of a building up of resentment at the injustices that uh, fate inflicts on a people, and the people in North Korea have it. And uh, I think to deal with that directly and to try to reconcile their feelings of injustice with the future hopes is the only way out. In January 1992, North Korea signed an agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, opening its nuclear sites to international inspection. But for the next two years, they resisted full compliance, fueling suspicions that it had at one time reprocessed enough plutonium for one or two nuclear weapons. Robert Gallucci says North Korea's actions were driven by a profound, even obsessive sense of insecurity. The phrase that kept coming up and initially shocked me, but as it kept being used over and over again uh, by Kang Suk-ju, who was my opposite number in negotiations, was, you want to strangle us. In the fall of 1993, the Clinton administration decided that its goal would be to prevent North Korea from producing more nuclear weapons rather than forcing it to account for any nuclear material it might have produced in the past. We needed to, at some point in this negotiating process, decide what we wanted most. Did we want the past settled more or did we want the capabilities settled more? Did we want to look to the present and the future or did we want to look to the past? And with North Korea, I think there had to be a trade-off. After North Korea blocked international inspections of its nuclear facilities in the spring of 1994, the crisis escalated. The Clinton administration began to build support for United Nations sanctions 
and to consider military options. I think it would be accurate to say that an assessment was made of the strike option at the North Korean nuclear facilities. The question is, what would happen afterwards? Joel Witt. I was talked to General Luck about this, and he said the president once asked him, what would be the consequences of another war on the peninsula? And General Luck said back to the president, it'd be a million and a trillion. And of course, the president said, well, what do you mean by that? And General Luck said there'd be a million casualties, and it would probably cost a trillion dollars worth of damage. So obviously, the consequences were truly horrendous. Donald Gregg. I had consulted with a very senior U.S. Air Force officer when I was still ambassador, saying what, uh, what's our capacity to uh, be certain that we would take everything out in Yongbyon if we hit it? His statement at that point was we can't be at all sure that we could take everything out. So uh, I was uh, very much against the idea of preemptive strikes. I was in touch with my successor, who was Jim Laney, whose apprehensions grew as uh, tensions mounted. And uh, I think he deserves uh, tremendous credit for calling up his friend, former President Jimmy Carter, and suggesting that Carter accept a standing invitation, which the North Koreans had extended to him to uh, visit North Korea. At a dangerous moment in the crisis, former President Jimmy Carter went to North Korea to meet with North Korean leader Kim Il-sung. Carter phoned Washington with news of a breakthrough. Bob Gallucci. I talked to Carter, and he told me of the deal that he had made with Kim Il-sung, essentially that the United States would return to the negotiating table, providing only that the North Koreans did not reprocess the spent fuel they had discharged into the pond. And he said, is that okay? And I said, I will report this. And he said, but what do you think? And I said, I, I, I don't think I have a view given that the president's in the next room and everybody else is there, the vice president and the secretary of state, secretary of defense. I think my view at this point is not particularly important, Mr. President. President Carter then told Gallucci he was about to go on CNN to announce the deal. I didn't say anything to that. I went back into the cabinet room and I reported this conversation, including the part about CNN. And I believe Tony Lake said, well, we could talk about this, but he's going on CNN. You did tell him not to do that, didn't you, Bob? I didn't feel real good about the situation. I had to say, no, I hadn't said a word. It seemed like a lynch mob was forming in the room, but somebody said, well, if he's going to go on CNN, maybe we should go watch it. Carter's visit prompted a new offer from North Korea's leader, Kim Il-sung, Donald Gregg. Carter went in and uh, found uh, Kim Il-sung to be quite approachable, that uh, he really was interested in improving relations with the United States, So he immediately said, if you're worried about my graphite uh, reactor, I'll shut it down. If you'll build me some other proliferation-resistant reactors so that I can have uh, an equivalent power-generating source, and if you will give me uh, heavy fuel oil in the interim to uh, make up for the power we lost by shutting down our graphite reactor. Greg was called to the White House while Carter was still in North Korea. We met with President Clinton and Vice President Gore and Christopher and Bill Perry and so forth, and uh, they could hardly believe uh, their ears when uh, this statement uh, came out of, uh, out of Kim Il-sung. In October 1994, the United States and North Korea signed the Framework Agreement. North Korea agreed to suspend its nuclear program in exchange for fuel aid and two light-water nuclear reactors to be built by 2003. Carter's intervention was not without controversy. Joel Witt. 
It's kind of controversial, obviously, because there are people who say he kind of saved our bacon, and there are others who said, in fact, you know, it was enormously destructive. I tend to fall somewhere in between, and I think Carter did accomplish something very important. He did it in a way that seriously hurt the administration's political standing because it appeared, and to some degree it was true, that there were conflicts between Carter and what people in the administration really wanted him to do. So it it had that effect on the administration's political ability to follow through afterwards. But while the agreement helped avert a crisis, it didn't last. Eight years later, North Korea acknowledged it had begun a secret uranium enrichment program, presumably to develop nuclear weapons, an apparent violation of the framework agreement. The lesson, I think, in looking back is that you can negotiate with the North Koreans. If you needed the lesson that you shouldn't trust North Koreans, then you can learn that too. But of course, we got into that negotiation in 93-94 because we thought they had lied in their declaration to the IAEA and got caught cheating. Despite more than two decades of attempts to reach a settlement on North Korea's nuclear program, a lasting agreement has proven elusive. Donald Gregg says America's limited knowledge of North Korea is part of what makes negotiations with the country so difficult. I think we have really never been particularly sensitive to Korean character, Korean thinking, Korean philosophy, the Korean sense of history, their own sense of their own identity. I think we have not been culturally aware enough in dealing with them. Uh, We don't understand them well, and uh, they don't understand us well, and I think that's a major source of the problems we have today. Coming up, we'll talk to two experts about the future of America's relationship with the two Koreas. I'm Ray Suarez. You've been listening to After Kim Jong-il, America and the Two Koreas on America Abroad.